Hello, everyone. Welcome to Climate Conversations, the new podcast from Temple University's Office of Sustainability, where we interview eco-champions in and around the Temple community on their advocacy surrounding climate policy and climate action. My name's Sean, and I'll be your host for today's episode. My name is Katie, and I'm the other host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk with Eugene Chislenko, who is not only a philosophy professor at Temple University, but also founded the organization Philosophers for Sustainability. Before we get started, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you receive notifications for future episodes. You can also follow the Office of Sustainability on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to find out about upcoming events. And make sure to check out the Office of Sustainability blog at sites.temple.edu slash TU Sustainability to learn more about events and new climate policies being implemented in and around the campus community. So without further ado, I'm just going to introduce Eugene. So after immigrating from the USSR, Eugene grew up in Boston and New York City and did his undergraduate studies at Harvard University. He received a PhD in philosophy from the University of California, Berkeley. In 2016, Eugene's main interests are in moral philosophy and moral psychology and in related topics in the philosophy of mind, philosophy of action, aesthetics, and the history of philosophy, especially Kant and existentialism. He's taught courses on introduction to ethics, classics in moral philosophy, contemporary moral theory, freedom and responsibility, the ethics of blame, and so much more. Eugene has also been involved in climate activism for a number of years now and is co-founder of the Philosophers for Sustainability, an international group of philosophers that aims to encourage the profession to take leadership on climate change and environmental sustainability. He's also been in a variety of climate justice organizations in the past, including the Sunrise Movement and 350, to my knowledge, but I assume has been involved in several others. Anything I, anything I missed in that, Eugene? Anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, that was, that was plenty. Beautiful. And how, how are you uh, feeling today? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm visiting my mom and, and walking around and looking at some water and some clouds, and it's a good day. That sounds like a lovely day. I'm also visiting my mom right now, and we definitely have some clouds and sunniness to go around. A great day for a podcast interview, if I, I agree. If I do say so myself. Yeah. yeah. We're, well, I know that I'm very excited for this conversation, and me and Katie have talked about this so much about how we're both excited, mainly because I've, I've known you for a bit, but there are like certain things that we haven't talked about, but it's just kind of nostalgic for me because I'm, I'm sure you remember this. You were the one who really kind of pushed me towards like climate justice and like climate activism two years ago when you bought that Naomi Klein book for me, This Changes Everything. So much of where I am today is because of you and because of you just making that push for me. So I appreciate that. And that's kind of one of the first things I wanted to learn more about, like your journey. Like when did you start getting involved with the climate justice movement and what kind of prompted that? I'll just say that was my favorite, like one of my favorite conversations that I've had at Temple. And actually that Naomi Klein book was really big for me. I had a friend who was reading it in about 2016. It was right about when I was finishing grad school. And I think a few people were talking about it. And I thought, okay, this, I should check this out. I got Naomi Klein, this changes everything. And I started reading it and, and it really blew me away. I think the thing that got me right away was in the first chapter, she talks a bunch about denial and looking away from climate. And I was one of these liberals who thinks climate deniers are idiots. You know, there's, there's a lot of them. And part of that is you think you're 
pretty smart and pretty cool and other people are not. And I read that chapter and I just thought, you know, she talks a bunch about denial, not just saying that climate change isn't real, but not being able to really look at it and having to look away, kind of like in denial and grief where someone close to you dies and you don't tell people that the person's still alive, but you might be in denial. Like you still want to call them when something good happens to you. You still want to go on vacation with them. You still kind of live your life in a lot of ways as if it didn't happen. And that's how she talked about denial. And I put down the book and I thought, oh my God, I am a climate denier. Like we are the deniers. We are the people who say that it's real when we're asked, but we don't actually act like it is. And we still book flights to go to all kinds of places. And we still think someday we'll see the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and it'll be so beautiful. And all these big ways that we just can't really take in that this is happening. Can't really face it. Can't really look at it. And so, uh, that's what, that's the biggest thing I came away with is we are the deniers. And I thought, okay, I don't actually want to be a denier. This is changing what I think a denier is, but I still don't want to be one. So how do you not be one? How do you really not be one? And so that got me thinking about getting involved with something. And I was totally new. I wasn't really plugged into stuff. I'm still kind of a new guy in a lot of things. And so I just kind of started from that book and I thought, well, what does she do? Well, she gets, she does 350. So I started going to 350 Philadelphia meetings and doing stuff with them. And through that, I met someone who was part of starting the Sunrise Movement. And she seemed amazing. And I thought, okay, you're incredible. What are you doing? Can I go to something you're doing? And they were starting the Sunrise Philly Hub. I started going to that. It's kind of one thing leading to another and you try things. And one of the biggest things that you hear, if you go to kind of any youth-led climate things or indigenous-led climate things or lots of climate things, people say, organize your networks, whoever you like support us, but also organize your networks wherever you are. And actually one of the things I was doing was for 350, I thought, okay, well, I'm a teacher. I can do some group things. So I started a series of conversations about climate where I would go into homes and places of worship and they would organize a group and I would kind of go in and facilitate something. It was called climate conversations like this podcast. It's still going, but we haven't done one in a little while for the pandemic. And so I was kind of going in there and a lot of people think more about individual footprint than they think about collective action. I think we're still trying to take in the importance of social movements and collective action. So there's a lot of like AC and, and water bottles and traveling less. And those are all really significant things, but I kind of found myself having to keep pushing people to think about, okay, but what are your networks? What are you a member of? You know, what do you do and what kind of sway do you have there? And as often happens, like maybe the seventh or eighth one of those, I finally asked myself that question. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, people should really think about this. So this is kind of a long way of saying how I came back around to thinking, okay, what am I a part of? What am I a member of? And I thought, well, all right, I guess I'm a philosopher. I guess I'm a member of the American Philosophical Association. And that's kind of how I came around to start thinking about what I could do where I am. That's so crazy that your experience with Naomi Klein's book, reading that first chapter on denial was what really sparked like that yeah. for you. Cause that was literally the same thing for me. I remember it was page 11 and it was talking about these airplanes sinking into the ground or something because it was so hot and how everyone was constantly denying their role. That's so wild. That was literally my experience. That's so like serendipitous. Yeah. She's not a, she's not a philosopher by training. And I don't know if she identifies as a philosopher or thinks of herself that way, but I think she's really philosophically deep. And I think that's actually a really great example of philosophy changing people's minds in real ways. You know, there's lots more that happens in that book, but just at the beginning, there, there's a way of reconceiving what denial is. And you can really get people fired up if you offer a different way of thinking about the right kind of thing. Wow, that's so interesting. And I definitely have a new book to add to my to read list. You send me your address, I'll get it for you. Yeah, Sean said you went out and bought it for him and we're like, you need to read this. But yeah, you kind of alluded to this, but that led you down the path to founding the Philosophers for Sustainability. 
yeah, that's basically that that story. So I I started thinking about what I could do where I'm a member, and so I I wrote to the American Philosophical Association. They're great. They they put on these mega conferences three a year in the U.S., but they also do lots of other things, and they've been taking a lot of leadership that I really admire, especially around diversity and inclusion and all kinds of resources for pedagogy and things like that. They have a bunch of committees and task forces that put out resources and and guidance and organize people in in ways that I think are really cool. And I hadn't seen very much on sustainability. And so I thought, well, maybe I will write in about this. And so I wrote in and got a response and not much more was going to come of that. And I thought, okay, maybe something bigger needs to happen. And I had a lunch at one of these APA conferences uh, with my friend, Rebecca, and we were, t- we were catching up and we were talking about being vegan and I had just become vegan and she'd been vegan for a long time. And we talked about that. And we talked about wishing that there was more on sustainability at these conferences, a lot of which, you know, depends on who submits what. And so we thought that we should get a group together and write in let's see if we can get a few people. Maybe we should try to get five people. Should we try to get 10 people? So kind of like kept escalating. And that's also, I think a big piece of wisdom that for me came from the sunrise movement. It's like you, you start local and you start with relationships, but then you see how, how bold you can get and how much you can grow and escalate to, to get to scale. So at some point during that, we were like, okay, well, we should actually just try to start a group and we should give it a name. And I think Rebecca thought we should get on a, a, a bigger philosophy blog, which we did. We posted on the daily news and we, we formed a group. So we started having these monthly meetings and we started this advocacy campaign for people to write in basically just encouraging, you know, trying to get not three, about 20 or 30 people to write in. And the ask was that the APA basically extend their model of task forces and committees to sustainability and form some kind of committee. And they they have a good practices guide that a lot of philosophers use. So we were asking if they would put out some guidelines on sustainability. That's how that got started. And kind of more things came out of that. But that was our first big project. Um, I was kind of picturing it as like, I think a lot of us have this picture that like all bigger institutions are evil. You know, we're not supposed to think of individuals as evil anymore, but it's true that there are big systemic problems. But I think I think I was kind of just assuming that the APA would be some evil organization. And it really wasn't. Like I thought we'd have to do some sit-in and we didn't. They respond to member feedback. They respond to member preferences and interests and priorities. And so once enough people say that, you know, climate or sustainability is important to them, things tend to shift. I think that's the the first really big lesson that I learned. You can just get people to advocate. And there are some things that are much harder to achieve, but there are also some really important low-hanging fruit. And so some of what we've been doing is thinking, what are the low-hanging fruit? That, that we can get right away. So we, I think we got 20 or 30 or maybe more than that to, to write in. We, we had a growing membership, growing email list. And at some point they responded and said, uh, this seems like a good idea. And would you draft the guidelines? And so we did a collaborative project and I think there's about 30 people involved in that. People brought in different expertise. We had a core working group. So we drafted guidelines and then worked with the APA and then got them adopted. And that was, it was a great experience. And I think it was impactful because that's our main professional guidelines in this country. And they went from zero to pretty bold on climate and managed to start a group in the process. So I was, I was really happy with how that turned out. And you also meet really great people. Like if you get frustrated with your, your field or what you're studying, it's, it's pretty amazing to get a group of people around you that cares about sustainability. There's so many nice people who actually care and, you know, using client language, people who are really looking, people who are really looking at what's going on in the world and at each other and at you. Yeah, I read through the guidelines a couple of days ago and I just have to say they were really enlightening to me, even though I'm not in a philosophy faculty group. Like I had no idea that one third of greenhouse gas emissions that institutions use are from faculty travel. 
a lot of the conversation in those guidelines about how universities can reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, become more sustainable, really also lined up with a lot of the work that the Office of Sustainability is doing. I know I'm involved with the Green Council and they have reusable dishes for clubs that commit themselves to acting sustainably and not producing waste. And I know that was one of the recommendations that the guidelines made. I'm really curious in the process. So you created these guidelines, then you said the American Philosophical Association was willing to hear you out. Was there any like lobbying and advocacy that you had to do to get the guidelines passed? It was kind of advocacy first and then writing mostly. So the the main advocacy was getting enough people to write in saying this was a priority. And then once we drafted the guidelines, there was some back and forth with the APA about some of the language. There were some things that we hadn't really understood that we were were sort of pushing for more, but we were also getting some pushback. And we, we learned through that process, like we didn't really understand what it's like to book a conference hotel for a huge conference and what it's like to push for sustainability in that in that context. And so we learned some things through that, made some changes there, but um, mostly they were really willing to work with us. It went great. And again, I mean, for, for me, the interesting thing is that my expertise in this is zero. Like I have no environmental background. I had never read any environmental philosophy at that point. <laughs> like I've read a bunch since then, but what just wasn't what I did. And I think everyone can do, I mean, maybe there's some way that being a philosophy teacher has been helpful to me, but I also think everyone can do it. If you just kind of go in and decide that you're going to put in some energy and get some people together. All those cool points in there were mostly from people who had thought about this for a long time, but had some connections, but kind of not enough of a network and not enough gaps filled in by other people who knew a lot about other things to make it happen. And once once it came together, it just really came together. So I, I'm just really happy that so many people are interested. And I think that's kind of where we are right now in a lot of places. It's like a lot of people are ripe. A lot of people are really scared about their future and their families and their kids and their students and would love to do something and a lot of people are doing something and a lot of other people are ready to do something but aren't totally sure what. And so there's all kinds of ways that you know people can come in with an idea or suggestions for, for things to do. That's actually one of the things that guidelines do. That's part of why I'm excited about guidelines. They're not just like rules. There's no enforcement. They're, they're recommendations, which can be turned into policy by different places. But they what they do is make a bunch of different recommendations at different levels of scale in different areas like events and food and teaching and, and curriculum and governance and facilities and so on. So people can read them and think about what's doable for them. Uh, like you were saying, you might not know some piece of information yet that you could learn from there, but you could also just get a bunch of suggestions. If you're planning the colloquium series for your department for next year, there might be small, medium and big things. And I don't know which of those are doable for you, but it's really nice to have a document that you can talk through that makes a bunch of those suggestions. What you said about not really knowing much about like sustainability, like, you know, when you were going. Yeah, I have no idea. I find that so interesting. And me and Katie were talking about this before. One of the grounding principles for Sunrise is along the lines of we all give what we can and we all have something to contribute. And then, of course, another grounding principle is like we all have something to lose from the climate crisis and something to gain from coming together. Yeah. And everybody has a stake. Everybody has something to contribute. Like, why do you think that it's important for philosophers? Like, what do you think that philosophers in particular can contribute to the climate justice movement or movement, larger movements for sustainability? injustice in the context of the climate crisis. 
Yeah, I kind of resist thinking that philosophers are super extra special in this. I think that I'm focusing on philosophers not because I think this is the most important group of people, just because everyone should organize their networks and and start from where they are. I think that's the first thing to say is we all need to start from where we are. And then we find ways that we can contribute or ways that we're special. I think a really good place for philosophers specifically to come in is this is also related to kind of the historical moment that we're in. I think a lot of what's needed right now is the rapid spread of the idea that climate change is a priority. I mean, that's a pretty vague general idea that doesn't say anything about, you know, how many parts per million of, of anything anywhere. But there there is a lot of science and economics and politics and all those things to figure out. But I think there's a really particular place also in, in terms of movement building and mass responses to things to just get people to look at and face and think through the ways that unsustainable practices or climate emergencies are real and, and are central and are intertwined with so much of what we care about and so many of the people that we care about. And that's something that you can contribute a lot to if you're a philosophy teacher, because that's our, that's our training. We all have years of background facilitating groups and thinking through ideas and arguments and distinctions. And I'm actually kind of more interested in, in TA skills than lecturer skills in this. I think most people need to talk a lot more than they need to listen. And that's something that I think philosophers can offer. There are non-academic philosophers. Some of them are also really involved in various groups of people. And uh, most academic philosophers teach groups of, of mostly younger people. And that's a really great place to plug in. And then there's lots of specific things. But it's hard to think of an area of philosophy that doesn't have some central climate issues. So if you think about knowledge or, or the way knowledge comes together socially, then there's so much about climate denial. And even if you don't care about climate change, it's such a good example just for those abstract issues. Or if you think about justice, then justice is everywhere in climate. So that's the big point. Racial justice, also intergenerational justice and women's movements and class issues and all kinds of things. Huge philosophical issues there. So that's just some examples, but climate is just affecting, climate change is affecting everything more and more. And so there's hardly anything that, that it doesn't affect. And that's part of what we've done in Philosophers for Sustainability is we've had some forums around teaching and been encouraging people to just look at their syllabus and think about where does climate fit in? And it, it usually does somewhere. Yeah, that's a really important point that this movement has a place for everyone and involves everyone. That's been one of the reoccurring themes I've noticed throughout the Office of Sustainability events that I've gone to. I'll go to one event and it will be Tyler students who have created art related to heat. And then there will be a Klein student who created a documentary and you'll have engineering students who are proposing sustainable designs and political science students who are proposing policies. And it's really incredible because I've always thought of it coming from a political science perspective as more of a policy issue, but there's really so many different aspects of this fight that involves everyone. And I also just wanted to touch on, you were talking about involving the youth and I see like just doing a little bit of research on the Philosopher for Sustainability website and on your website. It seems like that's really important to you and a reoccurring theme in your work. I know you're a team leader in the Philosophers for Sustainability for the Climate Strike Support Team. Can you talk a little bit about your work with that and how you're involving youth there? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, in general, frontline populations are the natural leaders on this. And lots of people are in one or more frontline populations. I think we could talk about any frontline population there, but 
there is a way that, especially in a university context, intergenerational issues stand out because there are some older students, but most students are younger and the whole, like your whole generation is a frontline population. You already are and you will be so much more affected by this than people who are older and even, even me from, you know, maybe one generation older. So that comes with a lot that comes with bigger risks, but I think it also comes with a more immediate awareness and understanding. So it's not pedagogical for me in the sense of, you know, it's good for students if you treat them with respect or treat them as having minds or something. It's like, no, you're just like, you're automatically, like you're off the bat, like smarter about this than I am because you understand in a more real way what's happening. You feel it more. So that's one reason why it's really important to follow youth on this. While I'm on youth, I think one thing that's really important to me it's also in a university context is mission statements. If you look at mission statements of most universities and colleges and a lot of departments, they basically tell you to prioritize climate. They don't say sustainability necessarily, but it's so central to most institutions of higher education to something along the lines of nurture the next generation of people or leaders and help them develop skills that they need to face contemporary challenges. And it's like, come on, what would be a good example? of that. So that's another way that I think we're kind of, as teachers and as philosophers, we're directly, it behooves us directly to think about the younger generation and what the challenges and priorities are going to be. Also, if you meet people, the people that I met in the Sunrise Movement have been so incredibly bold and connected and interesting. And if I didn't care about climate at all, I would be looking for some excuse to spend time with them. So that's that's another thing that's pulled me in. They were part of getting climate strikes going and getting them bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's that's some of what got me thinking specifically about climate strikes. And I think also the campus connection is really important for that. So if you're you know surrounded by youth, I think it's important to think about what climate strikes are and what role we can play in them. One of the things that our climate strike team did was put together a five-page primer on climate strikes for philosophers. It's on our website. It's just super basic, like what is a climate strike? Uh, why I care about climate strikes? Those kinds of things. So that's all on there. And then... Also on low-hanging fruit, there's some pretty easy ways to support them. It turns out that people who are organizing climate strikes are really hungry for places to announce them and bring in high school and college students. And so one of the things we did was we put out this primer and we put out an announcement and encouragement to all our members and our email list to get in touch with so Sunrise is, is U.S. only and we're global, but get in touch with younger climate activists wherever you are and who are organizing climate strikes and see what they need and see if they want class time. One of the things that we did in my department was just get a bunch of grad students and faculty who are teaching to give climate strike organizers a couple of minutes of their class. I usually give one, just one full class of most courses to I, I get Sunrise to come in and talk about what they're doing or, or some other youth activists. And that works really great and usually fits in somewhere and you prep less. So that's another, it's like, hello, you should do this. But that was one thing that we did. And then Temple also, so one of the organizations on Temple now and among students is the Temple hub of the Sunrise Movement. And they were part of recruiting people to strikes. And so sometimes it's things as simple as getting them a room that they can meet in. It's not always easy to find. But a lot of the stuff that we did was actually kind of easy stuff like that. I did not get arrested in any climate strikes, but some of that just kind of getting groups of people together and getting them to announce and spread the word and, and bring in people. You can also just ask them what they need and, and do that. That works pretty well. 
Wow. Yeah. I really appreciate that as a young person who's worried about my future with all the changes that climate change is causing. So you mentioned these frontline communities that are being more affected. I think another important conversation to have there is about the connections between racial justice and the fight for sustainability. So I know I read a moving piece on the Philosophers for Sustainability website about these connections. Can you talk a little bit more about your work in highlighting the connection between these two movements? Yeah. um, So we have a statement on our website that a bunch of us put together. And I think that is important to to have a visible statement. We did a couple of things. So one thing was uh, we had a a forum around it. I think that's our biggest forum that we've had was we we brought in a few speakers and had a a forum on climate change and racial justice. That was really good. I really liked that event. Our biggest event that we've done by far is this conference that we're putting on in a couple of weeks. It's hosted at Temple called Philosophy in the Climate Crisis. And it's gotten a lot bigger than, than we expected. And I'm really excited for it. And that's another big place that we're trying to draw out a lot of these connections. We have philosophers of color playing a few central roles and you can decide for yourself what their connections are. It's on our website, but love to have people come to that, check that out and, and see what some of the connections are. Yeah, I was actually, I'm very curious about this conference because I'm definitely going to be stopping by like to a few of the sections and just looking over some of the sections, like you said, you can be the judge of it yourself for where those intersections are and for what might be like most compelling for you and like most interesting. But there's some really interesting topics on there. I saw one about reconceptualizing structural change, what that means. I saw another on reparation. Is there any one that you, like you're just really excited to, I don't know, like sit in for or just absorb that knowledge that discussion. I'm really excited for this conference. I think we have a real opportunity here to to do something. It's going to be a lot bigger than some of the climate conferences I've seen in philosophy. So that's going to be an interesting challenge for doing all the final prep now. I'm like, okay, I want to go to scale, but can we do it next week? Not this week. But yeah, I'm excited about the size of it. And I'm especially excited about the way that the conference is going to combine theory with movement building. I think a, a lot of the emphasis has been on theory and on ways that philosophical theory can help to work out some of the bigger ethical and conceptual, et cetera, philosophical problems around climate change. So in this one, we're really trying to combine progress on theory and also teaching with building climate movement in our field. And so I think probably all three keynotes are going to be in some ways combining both of those things. So there, there's intergenerational justice kind of issues with uh, the first keynote with Marion Hordikin. We have a conversation with Bill McKibben where it'll involve movement building in some way. And then the last, the last day is Kyle White, who has done a lot of amazing work on indigenous rights and perspectives on climate change. I'm I'm excited for all of it, but I think I'm the most excited for the last day because we're going to do some really specific movement building and strategic planning kind of stuff that hopefully will be informed by a couple of days of really thinking through a lot of the issues. So we can reconceive structural change, uh, think about reparations, think about larger issues about activism and climate and so on, and then come together and really see what we we can do in in practice and get some projects going with that kind of background in place. So I want all of it and I want the third day partly because of the first two days but I'm extra excited for the third day. Yeah. One of the things that I feel like has just been a theme in the way that you've been talking about the philosophers for sustainability is literally like what you were just saying, this movement building. And I know you guys have some other activities and like projects that you're working on from like training people on how to hold local sustainability workshops to, you know, a host of other things. I'm just curious, like what does in your eyes, based on how the conversation goes at the conference, maybe this will be expanded, maybe this will contract. But at this point in time, what does that movement building look like for you guys in your eyes? 
Yeah. So some of that has been on pause during the pandemic. I don't believe in saying the pandemic is over. It's totally not over, but people are having some more energy now to come back to climate, especially in the U.S. And so this conference for us is going to be a big unpause. And so we're, we're thinking about how to pull in some of this energy of hundreds of people showing up for a conference into these ongoing things. So we're right now in the middle of launching what we hope is going to be a global series of local workshops that basically anyone can lead. So the web tab on that just went live yesterday. I don't know when you did all your reading, but that's up now. So we put together some resources and we're going to do a training and practice workshop and forum on it in July and pull people into that. And we're hoping that that's going to get a lot of discussion going in different places and also in some of those places start to form chapters. That's our next kind of big stage that we'd like to see happen is to grow enough that we can have not just thematic, but a kind of local regional chapters. Um, so we're doing that. We have a bunch of smaller advocacy teams that are focused on things like e-conferencing and events, public philosophy, teaching sustainability, climate strikes, social media outreach, things like that. So we're going to build slash relaunch a bunch of those right after the conference. The model that we've had that I think is a good model is combining informal discussions with focused advocacy. Some people really want a place to just come in and talk about what they're teaching and how they can work sustainability into it. And we're going to do that for them in August. And other people want to work on a really focused specific advocacy campaign. And so we're doing some of that. I think the, the biggest kind of new campaign that's coming out of discussions we've been having now is to encourage the APA, the American Philosophical Association, to start alternating in-person and virtual conferences. So they did three virtual conferences this year. I think they're thinking about doing three in-person plus one virtual. And so we're, we want to launch a campaign that we're tentatively calling APA 2 plus one. We want to encourage them to do a mix of virtual and in-person. Basically, we think all virtual has a lot to be said for it, but it could totally fall flat as a campaign and probably would. And we need to figure out some more things about making virtual conferences go well. But we're thinking alternating in-person and virtual is doable and could actually take off. So we're, we're thinking about that now, especially. That's kind of the, I think what we want to do is make space for informal discussions and also for people to come up with and launch and do focused campaigns like that. And so we're going to try to use the conference to get a bunch of people together and help a lot of people think about where they want to fit into this and then join some piece of it. We'll see how that goes. We'll have some meetings in July and stuff coming out of the conference, but that's what I'm excited about is catching that moment where a lot of people come together and then turning it into some more specific things with kind of flexibility about what people want to do and who has what idea and who wants to take it and run with it. And, you know, most of those will be run by people who are not me, but I want to help coordinate it and make it happen. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was a really insightful conversation. And yeah, we really appreciate learning more about the mission and the upcoming actions of your group. So for all of our listeners, we hope you enjoyed learning about how philosophers such as Eugene Chislenko are addressing climate change, one of many different groups that we'll talk with on this podcast. And if you want to learn more about the connections between philosophy and sustainability, make sure to check out the philosophy for Sustainability virtual conference that Eugene was talking about from June 10th to June 12th. You can learn more about the Philosophers for Sustainability at their website, www.philosophersforsustainability.com or by following them on Twitter or Instagram at P-H-I-L, the number four, sustain. So before we head out, I just want to ask Eugene, is there anything else I forgot? Anything else you want to plug for any of our listeners that you have coming up? Well, if you're a temple, I am piloting a new gen ed class called Climate Change and Climate Justice that's starting this fall. And I'd love to see anyone there if you want to take it or about your friends. I'm hoping it'll take off and be something that we can offer a lot. So I'd love to see you there. And you can look me up and write me with questions if you have questions about it or if you want the syllabus. Love to have folks there. 
Thanks so much. Yeah, we're really excited to keep having these really, really insightful conversations. And everyone, make sure to check out that class. And don't forget to subscribe to Climate Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Each month, we'll be back with more content exploring the work of eco-champions throughout Temple University. You can also follow Temple's Office of Sustainability on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.